we need to embrace the fact that we're vulnerable. We need to embrace the fact that we don't know everything as leaders. And that's what garners us the kind of followers we need. Meet John Amici, OBE. John is an organizational psychologist and the founder of APS Intelligence, where he uses his expertise to help organizations build thriving cultures. At six foot nine, John is a giant from Stockport. You'll most likely remember him as the kid from Manchester who played in the NBA. He's released a book called The Promises of Giants with 14 promises that you can make to become a better leader. A giant. I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransfield PR, and welcome to the third season of We Built This City. This is the podcast that celebrates the Mancunians, born, bred and adopted, who have put the heart into modern Manchester. I wanted to interview John because I wanted to know what took him from Stockport via that career in basketball to where he is now as a psychologist and best-selling author. How has John reconciled the fact that he can be seen as both terrifying and inspiring simply because of his height? And you'll hear how his mother raised him with a set of values that are nothing short of inspirational. You'll also find out how to unleash your own inner giant. John, welcome to We Built This City. Thank you. So it's an absolute honour to have you on the show. And I've actually had you on my hit list or wish list as opposed to the last two series. <laughs> yeah, <hit list. laughs> yeah, no, rephrase that. Definitely the wish list, not the hit list. And we're really delighted to have you on the show. And obviously, it's great to have that coincide with the launch of your new book, The Promises of Giants. And I've absolutely loved reading it. So you're a bred at Mancunian. You were born in Boston, Massachusetts, and came mm-hmm. to Stockport as a little boy and then went back to the States to study in high school and, and to play basketball and now live in London. That's it. Yeah. So that's my bio. There in, you in, go. In one sentence. <laughs> but I, I take it Manchester never really leaves you. So we'll talk a bit about that um, shortly. But we're going to concentrate today on the themes that you talk about in The Promises of Giants. And it's one of the best books I've ever read on leadership. And I'm fascinated with leadership. And the same with the team at Roland Dransfield. We, we try and better ourselves as leaders every day. So the book subtitle is How You Can Fill the Leadership Void. Mm-hmm. So is there a void in leadership currently? Ooh, ooh, <laughs> and how? It, I think void is both, on the one hand, it feels too small, and yet at the same time it's hyperbole because the void is nothingness. It's, it's the absence of anything uh, everywhere you look, in business, the way that some charities are comporting themselves, the way that government comports itself the way that governments around the world comport themselves, everywhere you look, there's an absence of leadership. Um, and th- this is not to say there is none. There are remarkable nuggets that you can find, people like Marcus Rashford and what he did last summer and continues to do now. There are lovely examples, and that's the good news. But the bad news is where there should be leaders, there are simply manoeuvrers mm. or managers or bosses or bullies. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. And as you say, we've certainly seen a number of people step up to that podium, I suppose, that perhaps weren't, it wasn't their natural space. And as you say, Marcus and Gary Neville's been very forthright, hasn't he? Mm -hmm. And we've had Gareth Southgate. So do you think that's just been a a natural response for those people to need to try and fill that void themselves and be giants, I suppose, in that respect? Yes, I think that people like that have realised the platform they have due to their job 
has given them an opportunity to speak up. And I think the way they've done it has been glorious because it's been, and I mean this in the best possible way, to a lot of people, they imagine sports people or former sports people to be pretty much devoid of any intellect, um, <laughs> to, to be devoid of any political savvy. And so, you know, the people that you mentioned, they're all in and around sports and the way they've operated has been so eloquent and so so sophisticated. I think that's the thing that I've loved about their leadership. It's not been brute force. It's been just wonderfully diplomatic, more so than I often manage to muster. <laughs> it's interesting to see some of the social media feeds, though. So particularly, say, for Gary, Neville, he's often told by football fans to get back in his box and stick to football and stick to punditry. But then there's also a real recognition that perhaps leaders have to use platforms that they wouldn't normally use for different things. And I think we've seen that. And we've also seen, I think you'll recognise lots of people who didn't consider themselves as giants becoming heroes, particularly over the past 18 months in the pandemic. Yeah, I've never understood the concept of of kind of staying in your lane as a sports person or as a psychologist or as a, anything else. We are human beings. We are supposed to be connected to this broader, wide world we're supposed to have a responsibility for each other. That's what community means. That's our job. It's part of our role as, as human beings. And so it's really interesting that when it comes to sports people, for example, we're perfectly happy for them to sell us, I don't know, colored sugar water <laughs> to pretend that it's going to make our performance better as middle-aged couch surfers <laughs> or shoes that we don't need, absolutely don't need, because we're not marathon runners um, and elite athletes. So we're, we're perfectly happy for them to sell us that stuff. But when they step into the veil of Marcus Rashford, when he looks back at, and he's my age, he won't do this because he's too humble, but he won't be able to just say, remember that year where I scored that goal? He'll be able to say, remember the summer that I helped hungry children eat? Stay in your lane indeed, right? <laughs> and so we need more leaders then. And I love your quote that leaders are people who believe in improving society and workplace culture, not only because it makes life better, but because it's proven to yield positive results. And that really aligns with our values, plant trees you'll never see. And we believe mm -hmm. that it's very important to do more in your role as a leader than the job that's just in front of you, which creates a better society. Yeah. It's a virtuous circle yeah. here. I'm not the kind of wonderful person that does everything for nothing. I, I just I don't believe that that's how most people are motivated. It doesn't mean that we don't have altruistic bones and we don't want to see better, but sometimes we've got to connect ourselves with the fact that we're not going to be around forever and our legacy is how people will think of us when we're gone, whether it's absent this week because we're, we're in London or somewhere else or absent forever because we've passed away. This idea that you could, the idea that I could live in someone's memory as a positive interaction, a, a point where I intersected in someone's life because they heard me speak or I shook the hand in public when we're back to doing that, that's legacy-worthy stuff. That's the bit that's going to be important. That is so true. We talk about what do you want people to say about you when you're not in the room and that's the room today or it's the it's the world as a room when you've left that room. Yep. That's what you leave behind is that imprint, isn't it? And it's a big thing to think about and I do think about it regularly actually, but I think we all should. So that makes it keeps us on track, doesn't it, to make sure that we are putting more in than we take out, I suppose. Yeah. 
I think part of the challenge is we don't always have the sophisticated language we need for this, right? So I'm with you. I know exactly what you mean when you say put in more than we take out, except I have never, I have a colleague in distress at the moment and I chatted with them yesterday and it was energy expensive. It was the end of the day. And because I'm an introvert, I just wanted to crawl into a hole with a bottle of wine. <laughs> but I knew that it was my job to do this. And yet at the end of the conversation, I was so glad that I chatted to them. It was like the energy that I thought it would took, it took. But somehow I got it back in spades. Even as an introvert who prefers not to be around people, <laughs> it was so wonderful. And I think we forget that sometimes. Yes, if you can just get over the impediment of the energy it takes to be that better person in the moment, the return on that investment, if you like, is wonderful. Mm. I love that. Do you say energy expensive? You energy say? expensive. I love yeah. it. It's a, it, oh, it's a very ABS phrase. We use it all the time. I absolutely <laughs> love that. I'm going to, because I find every day <laughs> quite like that. And I was having a meltdown last night, to be honest. But then an award arrived at the office for us that we'd, oh, won, a, we'd won a great award and it just kind of changed everything. But I'd, What was it? We won the PRCA, which is the body for public relations, and we won the best small agency for 2020 and 2021 for that 12 month period for the Northwest. So we were That's amazing. Oh, the energy no came. No small deal no. over, over <laughs> pandemic as well. It's amazing. Well, the energy came right back. But I do agree. I mean, you do get so much more, I think, from giving than taking. That energy does come back to you. Yeah. Whether it's at that minute or certainly, you know, as a lifestyle, I think it is, is great. So the book has got 14 promises that you're asking leaders or giants to make to themselves. And mm -hmm. at Roland Johnson, Wheel, we have 15 values. And a lot of people say, how can you have 15? You can't remember those, but we do. I mean, we live by them because they're ingrained. Why 14 for you? Was that just a, a number for you? Or is that what you came to when you were thinking about the promises? So when you look at the psychology of communications, which is not my expertise area, but we did look into it that people will tell you all kinds of special things. They'll tell you it's seven is the right number. You, you guys know better than me, right? <laughs> There's these listicle kind of rules. And so the publishers are like, no, it should be this number. And it's like, I tell you what, I'd like it to be 13 because 13 uh, the number that I wore when I played. It's always my lucky number because it was weird to other people. <laughs> but fundamentally, I was like, it will be what it is. I will admit that I was kind of hoping it was 13 or maybe 15 or something that felt a bit more rounded, but we got to 14 and I'm like, this is it, right? There's more to do, but that's probably in another book. And we're probably, you know, gilding the lily. It really was the things that I thought these are the most important. And also they are kind of grouped. The first six promises are all about you. They're all about introspection. Cause I think that's the piece of leadership that is off most often forgotten. And I think introspection is the most important thing. So we've got six chapters on that. Then we've got four chapters on interpersonal because that is truly important. And then we've got four chapters on organizational, kind of how do you navigate organizations from diplomacy on through. And it just happened to work out at 14. I'm hoping people tolerate that odd number. <laughs> that, well, even odd number. <laughs> and do you have one promise in there that's really important to you? Is there one standout there? The first one, I promise to view myself critically, but not cruelly. It's amazing. And you'll know this, you, you see people all the time. And there's this interesting combination of people who think they are gods. These are usually men, um, if I'm honest, if we're honest, 
it's usually men who are completely unaware of any of their faults or foibles. <laughs> and so they haven't viewed themselves critically. But then there's this big swathe of people when you get out there and talk to them, even highly accomplished people who externally look incredibly successful, whose success is always corrupted as if they are on a daily basis pouring vinegar into cream <laughs> because they have never been able to view themselves critically, but without this kind of lens of you're ugly, you're bad, you're stupid, you're not as good as you should have been, that voice in their head that continually assaults them. And, and I think if you can get past that, if you can really be vigilant to that voice in your head, that allows you to be free to be a much more authentic leader. One of the other ones I talk about is vulnerability in one of the chapters, because we've grown up with this idea that all leaders should be strong men. And it is an archetype, right? And it is a man. And it's a strong man. That means you're certain. You're never without knowledge. You're omniscient. You know everything. You're invulnerable. You can't be hurt. You're never uncertain. You're never scared or anxious. And it's a terrible archetype for a leader. Mm. We, we need to embrace the fact that we're vulnerable. We need to embrace the fact that we don't know everything as leaders. And that's what garners us the kind of followers we need. Mm. Yeah, there's lots in there I want to talk to you about. So I'm going to I'll start with one bit there. The leadership aspect of the fact that we feel that we have to show up and know everything because that's what makes the people around you feel secure. And also, I suppose in life, even going back to being a kid, I was the elder sibling, so I was myself and then my brother was two years younger. And um, it was always expected for me to be the one that got it all sorted, had it all sorted. And that became, I suppose, the persona that I lived into. I didn't have it sorted, but I was expected to. And then I thought it was going to be weak to show that vulnerability. And then as you grow and then you get into business, then you think, well, nobody helps me. No one ever gives me any help. And I've realized, and certainly in the last few years since we did our values with a, an amazing person called Chris Brindley, MBE, who's chair of Rugby League World Cup, when he helped me make our values and create our values for the business, I'd realized at that point, vulnerability is absolutely fine. It's not only fine, it's important, but my life changed and the business changed at that point when I said, hey, I have not got all the answers. I'll tell you what I know. I've not got all the answers. And people can come with you then and help, can't they? Yeah. there's. I mean, there's literally no invitation to contribute if your leader makes it clear that they know everything and their answers are always right. Why would you bother? <laughs> In the in the book, I talk about the idea of I love the I love the Blue Planet, the kind of David Attenborough Blue Planet stuff. I think they're amazing. I mean, national treasure, obviously. And um, you see those pictures of the big sharks or the big whales, and on them they've got these these fish with sticky heads. They're remora. <laughs> yeah. And and I think leaders often model themselves after that kind of apex predator kind of model. They they swim around, they'll kill whatever they want, and then anybody who happens to be stuck to them. Can, can have a little nibble on whatever's left when they're finished, gorging. <laughs> and it's like that is a, seems to be a, a kind of a ludicrously legitimate leadership archetype. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, it made me laugh also again yesterday morning when I had the meltdown and I was a bit 
tearful, which I never really do. And it was just stuff had got on top of me that moment. And for 25 years, I've had the business that we joke that pretty much nobody's ever made me a cup of coffee when I'm coming to the office <laughs> because I do the bruise or I'll, I'll get it all in and, and I've got it all sorted. And when I came in yesterday and Molly, who's a wonderful young woman in our team, she went, I'm getting you a coffee. And that's because I look I was like a normal human being. And, uh, and, you know, she made me a coffee and I felt much better for that. But that invulnerability, as you talk about, is also we learn those leadership characteristics, don't we, from that straight white man leader that we've grown up with. Yeah. And worse than that, it's the it's a dysfunctional kind of picture of an armoured. It's Because, you know, straight white men aren't, the problem they are where power lives yeah right but it's not the problem the problem is that many straight white men have been bullied into this picture that they're not a proper man unless they are properly assertive unless they respond with rage Mm -hmm. at any contravention unless they are cruel and persecute those who fail unless they act like they are wearing armor in all circumstances when you watch the interactions of slightly drunk men um, when you wander into the northern quarter, you see it start to kick off. Just if you look at the men, imagine they're armoured and it will explain their behaviour. The way they push and stagger back and then buoy themselves up and then charge forward. They're knights in their mind. And that's why it's so devastating. It's why the consequences of the behaviour are so bad because when something goes amiss, they're not armoured. They're not invulnerable, mm. physically or otherwise. And then, the, you know, the other part is that men are socialized in, in this awful way. Men and women are both socialized in a ridiculously gendered way, but men are socialized to respond to every emotion that they experience with rage. If you're embarrassed or humiliated, anger is the answer. If you're upset or slighted, anger is the answer. If you're depressed, rage, anger is the answer. Because we've been told that crying or silence or quietitude or something else is not the answer. That's womanly or feminine or wrong. It's, it's such a shame because when you embrace the fact that, that you can be a leader in many different modes, then you create this opportunity for people to be contextual leaders. We will have all had this situation. We've got, I've got a geek squad. They're my... Um, they're my business psychologists, but they're my geek squad is what we call them internally. And they're amazing. Um, happens to be all, all young women at this point. I mean, just truly remarkable. And there's so much that they know that I don't know because they've, they've just been in study. And the other day we were just dis- discussing statistics and we realized that when I learned statistics, we did it by hand. Mm-hmm. And I was very bad at it, just want to point it out. <laughs> but now we use JASP or SPSS, these two uh, computer program systems to do an analytics. And so I don't know anything about it. So I just love the fact that when we start talking statistics, this contextual leadership comes from my geek squad because they just know better. And there's no shame on me. It's just stuff that I'm, I didn't experience. When you do that, you allow people to rise into leadership in different moments in the day without all the pressure of being the, the leader all the time. It's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Also, on the tea thing, can I just point out, (laughs) in my organization, everybody who joins us, when they come into the office finally, because obviously we're quite remote at the moment, when they come in, everybody has a tea-making lesson because I only drink tea out of a pot. I don't do tea bag in cup. (laughs) 
And so, and, and then we rotate. So everybody makes tea on a different occasion. <laughs> That's like the, uh, the swans in, in, or the, the geese formation. You take, yeah, exactly. Well, I'm going to bear that in mind, actually. <laughs> Let's just talk about the very emotional piece at the start of the book. And it's very emotional for a mum to read this about the struggles that you had as a, a young boy growing up in Stockport when you were taller than everybody else mm. that you knew or had even seen at that point and a very tall young black boy which brought prejudice and fear and all those things with it. Can you just try and, for those listening, kind of capture what that was like for you? Yeah, I mean, Stockport in the 70s, uh, I lived in Heaton Norris, and Stockport, I always used to say I lived in Heaton Moor because it was the posh mm. bit, but we lived in Heaton Norris. <laughs> and um, Heaton Mersey originally, at the bottom of the, the dip. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I was like a unicorn, big black unicorn. I was the only person like me. Uh, there was nobody else on my street. I remember when an Indian family moved in in the end of our street, um, making two brown families on a street, and how our neighbours then came to us and engage in a way they never had in the past because they they said that these people had brought this smelly food to our to our street and it just made you realize like that we're, we're a part of this what were they saying about us before this lovely indian family showed up mm. so it, it was brutal just because of people's ignorance if you are a small black boy i don't have any context for this but i would have imagined i could hide um, but as a massive black boy, you can't, you just, you're everywhere. And you're also many people's worst nightmare, worst fear, massive and black. I was always kind of incredulous about this because I was a chubby, no, I was a fat kid. And, um, and my school uniform was, was black with gold braid. It, it's just not an intimidating look. And so I always wondered why people thought I was a threat in school uniform. Um, and of course, you realise that sometimes blackness overpowers ridiculous school uniform in terms of um, looking like a threat. It just meant I spent most of my childhood hiding in the library. I can tell you, you know, I can re- I can remember with real detail what my school library smelled like, what my bookshop in the library smelled smelled like, the sound of a library. For those of you who go to libraries, you'll, you'll know what I mean, because there is a sound of a library. I know Central Library is different, right? Because it's it's actually a kind of hub of lots of activity. But I mean, a, like when you go to Rylands, yeah. uh, when there's not yeah. tons of tourists there, yeah. there's this sound that's made by being in a room of books. And it's very comforting, mm. even to this day. Mm. And you also talked about that you've been seen as both an inspiring and terrifying giant and being so tall and having so much presence can also work against you. And for me, my daughter's, she's six foot, we're not allowed to say it, but she's been very, very tall from a very young age. And the first thing that comes out of so many people's mouths when they meet her is, oh my God, you're so tall. And I want to stuff those words back in in the mouths. She says to me, mum, they wouldn't say to me, oh my God, you're so small. But she said, when they say that to me, even though I'm five foot 11, six foot, I feel so small. And it's very difficult as well, not just being a very tall person, but being a very tall woman and being a very Mm. tall woman from the age of, say, 14. So I really relate to that. 
Yeah, th there's two things about that that strike me. The first is it demonstrates the lack of vigilance that most people deploy in interpersonal interactions. The reason I'm a psychologist is because I believe words can change people's worlds. And so when I talk, I'm aware that every word I use, if misplaced, can also do harm. And so when I approach somebody, I will notice things about them because we all do as human beings. But I will also think, if it's something that I want to know more about, have I earned the right to know it yet? I haven't earned the right to know your prescription of your glasses or whether you're short-sighted or long-sighted. There may be time, right? We, we meet again, we meet again, and because I wear glasses and you wear glasses, we may have that conversation. But I haven't earned the right to know that number right now. What's your minus or what's your plus? <laughs> no, I haven't earned that right. And people often forget that. When you see someone who's tall, why, does, why do people not think, if I've had this thought and it's jumped into the top of my head, how many other people have had this thought and been reckless? And perhaps I can be the one who looks and says, I heard you're really good at horticulture. Uh, what are you thinking about doing when you go to university? And on and on and on. There's, there's a thousand, there's a myriad of other curious questions you can ask about people that make it clear that you're really interested in what's inside. Mm. Um, my, my body is a case for my brain, especially now I'm older. It's not, it's not a tool for me to do amazing stuff anymore because, <laughs> frankly, getting up is painful. <laughs> but it's just a case for my brain, and, and the people I appreciate are the ones who can see that, who understand that. The other thing I'll say is my mother gave me great advice that I would like to pass on to your daughter, which is this. She told me when I was young that some people's words are like feathers and some people's words are like bricks. The people who are connected to you, who mean something to you and you know you mean something to them, their words are like bricks. You take them and you use them to build a foundation. That's what you step upon. And over time, the, the words that they say, whether they're advice or affirmations or, or critiques, are things you use to better understand yourself and build a solid foundation. Other people who have no connection to you, who, who, who have no interest in you other than purience, you know, you know, just passing superficial interest, their words are like feathers. And when they approach, you blow them away. You don't let them sit on your shoulder. Or you don't let them tickle your nose. You blow them away. That's a lovely way of thinking about it. It's really feel quite emotional. <laughs> yeah, it's borrowed wisdom. It's my mum. Oh, well, thank you to your mum for that. And I'm going to phone my daughter straight after this and tell her that. <laughs> do you feel that being such a standout person made you more resilient? Or do you think it? you, you talked about spending time in the library? Did it initially make you more reserved and then more resilient? Or how did that work for you? No, I think I, my personality is one that people are energy expensive. As much as I enjoy interactions, as much as I enjoy talking to people and, and hopefully positively influencing individual people or groups of people, those interactions wipe me out. I'm exhausted. And I think that would be the case if I was big or small. Being big means that you're always being observed. It's a piece of advice another a coach of mine gave me years ago. It's like you're always being observed. And that's the, that's the truth. I just always consider when I walk in front of a window at my house, when, I, when I'm out in public in, in any capacity, I know that because of my size, 
I'm always being observed. And it's made me more vigilant um, about what I do and the impact it might have even on casual observers. And it's also made me understand that I'm disproportionately powerful, right? I am six foot nine, I'm 24 stone. I am bigger than most people can possibly imagine. You People may have met somebody as tall as me. They have rarely met someone as massive as me. And I know what I'm capable of without ever having done it. I haven't hit anybody since I was 16, and that was defending myself off the bus stop. And I can't imagine doing it, but I'm aware of my power. And I'm aware that if I don't think about it when I shake someone's hand, I can crush it. If I don't think about it when I hug somebody, I can crush them. If I don't think about it and I turn and in the book, I talk about how I broke someone's nose when dancing, right? <laughs> you know, this is in the village. This is, I'm just, yeah, exactly. As, as, as in cruise in the village, and I broke someone's nose at, at midnight on, on New Year's Eve. And it just, when you were, that's the thing it's helped me with. That's the thing that I want people to understand in this book, as well as meeting my mum, which I think is a lovely part of the book. You get to meet my mum. You get to find your giant, and when you do, you can never pretend again that you don't have influence because everyone's a giant to someone. Maybe you're only a giant to, to your child or to that one person in school who looks up to you or that one teacher, or it doesn't matter what the context is. Once you've recognized you're a giant, you can never again do that thing where you pretend you're not mm -hmm. when it's convenient. The other side of being disproportionately powerful is that relatively tiny gestures that I do can have this lifelong impact on people. That balance is worth it. Bit of everyday vigilance for a bit of everyday impact. Mm. But do you think if we have a void of leaders or a void of giants, there are a lot of people walking around who just don't know they're a giant yet? Yeah, many people listening to this will have been told that explicitly. They'll have been told what they're good for. Oh, you're from Brinnington. We know what you're good for. <laughs> Everyone is a giant to someone. Everyone, I did a, um, I do these little Jedi reflections, these videos every week on social media. And this week was about success being relative. You know, the idea that this, it's pointless always comparing yourself to other people. And there are people I grew up with who, who had so many more disadvantages for me than me. And I look at where they are now. And I think if we measured the distance traveled for both of us, they would eclipse me in a heartbeat because I know where they came from. I know how difficult their life was. A friend of mine who, who started off life in care had the most challenging of experiences and now works in social care and is a leader in social care. And you suddenly realize now that's, look at the distance traveled. Mm -hmm some bloke who played basketball who's six nine i think his distance traveled is better i think it's just unfortunate we don't look at it that way mm. yeah and so there are so many giants who are walking around that we don't see i mean john thompson the actor said about doing a good thing there are a lot of people around who will do the good thing but then they stick the hand up and check out that everybody around them seeing them do that good thing and that's not mm. what a giant's about is it <laughs> no that's not, that's deeply frustrating i mean you don't have to announce it you don't have to announce it it's like these infuriating people on on linkedin who post these extensive stories about how they saw a 
uh, rough sleeper and they stopped and they gave them money and, and then they, they were late for their job interview, but they got the job. It's like, no, don't virtue signal. Yeah. Just remember that, you know, the thing I always keep in mind is, is the most inconsequential things that I, that I do often that are the most impactful. The fact that you make tea for your lot it may be nothing more than just what you do. But for a lot of organizations, it's inconceivable that anybody would even remember someone's tea order. Inconceivable. And so it's a tiny thing, and it's not like it's the all credit should be showered everywhere, but it's the tiny thing that signals that you're actually paying attention. Yeah, and that's why you can't have a day off. Yeah. And so you have to, it's those small things. I mean, people have said to me, and it's a common question, isn't it? So what was your big break? And there's no big break. It's the minutiae, it's, you call it the dusty stuff. It's those tiny things that you do that you don't think about, which create the foundations for a good life, not just for you, but your community around you. Yeah, success is always in the minutiae. It's in the mundane and the ordinary and the dull and the unrecognized. It's the, that's the graft bit. The, the really, here I am at it again, again, again. That's the stuff. And it's the stuff that people don't look at or care about or imagine happens, you know, whether it's Tom Daly and, and mm-hmm. Matty, whether it's those two, when they won their, when, when they're diving uh, gold, people imagine that what they're watching of them is all they do, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of realizing it's hours in the gym doing super boring repetitions, it's hours on a, in, in a gym mat, in, in a gym floor doing tumbling routines and, and practicing to the minutiae. It, that's it. It's all that, that nobody recognizes that brings out brilliance. Absolutely. For those two minutes that they, you mm-hmm. know, that it's four years of the boring stuff for those two minutes, which may work or not. I mean, exactly. D- Dad used to say to me when I was growing up, there's plenty of room at the top. I used to be worried there wouldn't be enough space for me kind of in life generally. And he said, there's loads of room because not everybody wants to get there. And I think having read your book, that's because people don't recognize they can be a giant and they don't understand the capacity of what they can do or be or become as a human being. Mm -hmm. I think it is true. Everybody can achieve a meaningful, purposeful success for themselves. But I went to my son's graduation, university graduation, um, and this was 20 years ago, so I'm old. (laughs) And the commencement speaker he he started off his speech by saying, the lift to the top is broken, but we can still use the stairs. And that's another part of this equation. For some people, there is a lift. You go to the right school, yep. you have the right accent, you're, you're from the right region, frankly. And it's not that life is easier, but maybe it gets you six floors up in this 80-floor building. Maybe it gets you 20 floors up. For some people, especially in politics, it appears it gets them all the way up (laughs) with little to no gumption or intellect. (laughs) But for some people, from day one, it's trudging up the stairs and watching as other people whiz by. That's the privilege piece of the picture that people hate to talk about, but is very real. I went to Stockport Grammar School incredibly privileged. I had a mum who was a a doctor. I was a middle-class family, even as we struggled privilege. I live in a penthouse in London, privilege, all of this. None of this diminishes my success, but it just means that every time I look at somebody else, 
who's achieved, who've achieved a meaningful success for them that doesn't look like mine, I recognize that I may have scooched past them six or seven floors before I even had to climb. And I have to reflect on their success in a very different way. Let's talk about your mum then, because it's clear that she was a guiding light and it has been wonderful to get to know her. There's a, a quote that you, you got in the book and she said to you that when an axe meets wood, only the axe forgets. Mm. And that's all about acting with vigilance and care, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. And she said to you that a very, very important part of your life when you were talking about going off to the States, potentially, would you recognize your soul in the dark? Yes. So the first one, when axe meets wood, only the axe forgets, is actually a Nigerian proverb that she, I mean, my mum, uh, obviously my father's Nigerian, they fought in the Biafran War, um, in the, the Civil War, war conflict in, in, in Nigeria. And so she was quite steeped in Nigerian culture and brought that to the table with us all. But the soul in the dark was all her. That was all her. Would you recognize your soul in the dark? When I told her I was going to play in the NBA, she said, that sounds challenging, which was a very frustrating <laughs> response because I wanted, as a boy, I wanted my mum to say, yep, yeah, great, go ahead. Like all the other boys in, in my basketball team at 17 had done, even though I'd only been playing for about 45 minutes. And instead she said, would you recognize your soul in the dark? And she said, most people who want to do ordinary things, and she didn't mean that pejoratively, she just meant stuff that's well-trodden, right? A pathway, even if it's a doctor, which is mm-hmm. highly difficult, or it doesn't really matter, or a teacher, which is highly challenging. There's a really well-structured pathway to get there. And I wanted to go to America to play, to get a scholarship. And, and that path had never been trod by a British person. And she said, people who want to do that kind of thing, they have to know themselves really well. Most people spend their whole life worrying about what they're going to do and never think about who they're going to be or become. She said, especially if you're trying to do these convoluted, difficult things with no well-trodden pathway, you have to know the things that will sabotage you. And that's why she and I discussed who I really was, what really made me up. And one of the things we discovered is that I am innately incredibly lazy. (laughs) Which is true to this day. Um, it is true to this day. Incredibly lazy. But the thing that that revelation allowed was for me to structure my life so it didn't sabotage me. I'm incredibly lazy. So if I get an opportunity to do nothing, I'll do nothing. Whereas I am quite good at following my own instructions or, or other people's. So my diary is laid out like a Tetris board. There are breaks in it. Remember to get up and pee because I will forget if it's not there. I, uh, remember to have lunch because I'll forget if it's not in there. Remember to stand up because I'll forget if it's not in there. But everything else is just chunked in, including you must reply to this email, you must do this, all of it. And that means that my tendency to be lazy only manifests on uh, if I do take a day off on the weekend, on that day off on the weekend when I've got nothing in the diary and I look and then I, I realize it's four o'clock and I've been sat in front of my, uh, in my television for the last eight hours because that's me Yeah. with one cold cup of tea that I, I made and then forgot to drink because I've just been sat there for eight hours. That's me. But when you know that's you, it yeah. doesn't stop you from achieving. It helps you to achieve. I have no restraint when it comes to food. None, none. Uh, Donuts are my kryptonite, but so is peanut butter ice cream. 
<laughs> so I don't have donuts and peanut butter ice cream in my house. If, and my meals, I have a meal plan. They deliver the meals, shrink wrap that I'm going to eat today. And that's what I eat today. And I don't buy anything else except milk. Mm. This way, even if I want to, it requires an extra step. I've got to go on delivery or just eat or something. And, <laughs> you ain't doing and that. Got, and, I'm, and it's like uh, 20 minutes. Uh, and then the, the pang is gone. Yeah. So I just managed to maintain myself under obese by doing that. <laughs> and this is, knowing yourself is such a powerful asset. Yeah. Oh, it is. So she equipped you with the skill set to recognize that and then work with those limitations. And yeah. Incredible. The, the amazing part is that when you do it, there's there's more too. You, you suddenly realize how you respond to certain things, what things will tweak you, what elements of you will have an impact on others that you might not have realized, you know, and, and more sophisticated than height, for example. And when you do that, you can just be a more thoughtful, interpersonal actor. When you are with other people, you just, you know more about, ooh, ooh, that person said this. So I work in the NHS. Um, uh, MFT, Manchester mm. uh, Foundation Trust. And if you say stuff about the N NHS that I know to be provably false, yeah, that's going to give me a hot flush. But because I'm I, I'm really aware of it, I also know I'm a giant. I also know I can't respond by, you know, in my head, I'm like, I just want to throw you off this balcony <laughs> right now because I've seen the work that my yeah. colleagues have been, my, the real ones have been doing the, I'm just a governance person. They're, they're doing the real work. Yeah. And that makes me crazy, but because I know it, I can just maintain my mm -hmm. calm just enough. <laughs> yeah, that's self-control is and self-knowledge. Mm -hmm. They're very important values, aren't they, to instill? So that's a neat segue, I suppose, into have you had a look at our values? Is there anything on there that I have you no dickheads. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I know you've got asterisks there, but I'm assuming that's what it says. Well, it does. And it does. It just depends where we actually put it when we say it. I always say dickheads, though. I don't know why I don't do the asterisk. Yeah. So you you yeah. talk about that in your book, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Don't be a dick. That is, to me, I mean, you've put a more eloquent description. Character and talent will get you through the door, but integrity will keep you here. That's a lovely way of putting it. But <laughs> I don't like the expression of power just because you can. I think one of the worst things leaders do is make decisions. And then when people ask why, their only answer is because. Mm. That's a power trip. And that's the root to dickheadishness. Because to me, that's the Sith side of things in a Star Wars sense. There's one here, make quality a habit. One of the things that we say at APS Intelligence is that we want to delight our clients. And that means a certain level of quality. And that doesn't that we have things called uh, Obi Wans because we're, we're nerds, <laughs> yeah. um, which are operational behaviors, and we have things in it like never say yes if it's a no, which is akin to your integrity, because there's nothing more confidence inspiring with a teammate in knowing that when you come to them and say, Lisa, um, I've got this, I've got this meeting at, at four today, and I've uh, I just need this from you. Can you do it for me? And they say no. I know they've actually thought about it because they won't just say, no, they'll say, no, I can't actually do it because I've got this, this, and this. But there's also something amazingly confident. And that's what teammates do, right? You don't lie to each other. But when they say yes, and you know it'll be in your inbox, it'll be ready on time, on target, because they said yes. And that's what yes means for us. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Just quickly also tell me, I love this expression, swivel the chair. Ah, uh, Yes. Yeah, I, when I was writing the book, I really, I, 
I vacillated about this because I felt like I was really talking about something so tiny way too much. And I'm still not quite sure that I haven't talked about something that's really tiny way too much in the book. It's about, but it's about the minutiae again. It's back to that, right? So when you, when you interact with people, I think this is going to come across poorly in a non-visual setting, but I think you often see people and they're tapping away at the computers in my office uh, over there. I've got three screens and so I can find myself absorbed in this kind of, uh, I don't know, flight deck of, of screens. And then somebody comes in and there's always this temptation to just kind of crane your neck slightly. And I realized very early on, actually, that this is just making it clear that whatever's happening in front of me on my screens is more important than you. And I trust my team, and I know that if they're coming to me, it isn't for, oh, how are you doing? How's the weather? Aren't you tall? <laughs> it's, it's for serious stuff. It's for stuff that's important. Even if it is, would you like a cup of tea? Which is a deeply important thing in my office because the answer is yes, and <laughs> yesterday. Um, the idea that you swivel your chair, just to make it clear that what's happening on my screen, as vital as it is to our business, because for all of us it is, is not as important as you in this moment. You in this moment. It's one of the, that's a, you know, it's one of the early lessons in the book. I'm not quite sure where it is, but from my mum, the idea that our attention is, is a tool or a weapon when you provide attention unconditionally and without distraction, you are telling people that they are the most important thing in this moment. And that is a statement about their worthiness, their integrity, their authenticity, their utility, and their humanity. And when you withhold attention, it's a weapon. You're telling people that they are not important enough for you to turn your chair, which is usually on a swivel, 90 degrees. And sometimes not important to look at. In this day of virtual meetings, when people, you can see them, they've got their emails or they've got a document they're reading in front of the screen. And so they're, they're kind of nodding along when people are talking, but you can tell they're not looking at you. Not even important enough to pause writing an email for. What a terrible indictment of, of you as a colleague. Yeah. Oh, so important. So important. I don't think you overwrote on that. And I want to have that as our 16th value. There you <laughs> For go. Sure. Absolutely. Like, yes. And we've talked as a team about, you know, video call etiquette because we're not, none of us have done it before, but it's offensive, isn't it? Sometimes you think, particularly if you've done it, we're doing lots of pitches on, on calls now and all that work that your team has put into responding to a brief for somebody and they aren't even listening or they're checking their emails or what they're Googling what they're going to have from Amazon. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it is. So I just swivel the chair. Just It's, it's an anti-performance thing, right? If you aren't paying attention to your colleague's pitch, if it's a practice pitch, if it's a pre-client pitch, if you're not paying attention, you can't offer anything. Mm. You can't offer your insights. And so you're not just making it clear that you're disinterested in your colleagues. You're disinterested in the success of the organization and you're disinterested in contributing. And that's a really bad set of messages. If it's with your client, our team has assigned roles. We're, we're scanning the faces of the people we're talking to 
to see what's resonating and what's not. We're communicating back channel to make sure that everyone who spotted something. So we need you. We need your attention here. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. All in. Your epilogue, John, is called Hoover the Landing. Mm. And as soon as I scanned the contents page and I saw that title, I thought immediately, it made me think of either the, the All Blacks, Legacy Sweep the Sheds, which is one of our values, or the types of things in our house in Salford, which were, who's left the bloody immersion heater on? Have you, <laughs> <laughs> don't leave the phone off the hook and turn those landing lights off. The heard that. <laughs> Who left the immersion heater on? Oh, God. And when I read it, it's along the same line. So just explain Hoover the Landing. Yep, Hoover the Landing is when I was when I was growing up, two sisters, myself, we had uh, a list of a rota. We called it a very posh. We had a rota of jobs that we had to do: washing up, drying up, hoovering. And I remember one particular occasion. I felt like I hadn't seen my mum in ages because she got up before. We got up to go to school and it was out of the house and she came back after we were supposed to be in bed. So sometimes we literally would go a week without seeing her till the weekend. And I thought I'd, I'd miss my mum. I'm going to stay up, which was taking my life into my own hands to be up after bedtime. And so I waited for her. She came in. She looked exhausted. I ignored that. I ran up to her and gave her a big hug and and kept on just pouring my words out at her. I love you so much and that's why I'm up and don't 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 hate me for being up after bedtime I just love you so much and then she wasn't really responding in the way I'd hoped and she was looking past me to the rotor that was on the wall in the corridor and eventually she kind of moved away from me and she she's like did you hoover the landing <laughs> And I was like, no, I didn't hoover the landing, but I was just staying up because I love you so much. And she said, if you love me, you'd hoover the landing. <laughs> and I, it's always stuck with me. I, don't, I must have been eight or something at the time, but it's always stuck with me, the idea that saying something profound about someone else is easy. Demonstrating your profound love or connection or loyalty or whatever to someone else that's the hard bit but it's also the meaningful bit it's also the thoughtful bit you know as i reflect back now so demonstrating that authentic connection that authentic love that meaningful relationship that's the thing that is hard to do but it's also the thing that's the most important to do and and that's what that taught me that's why hoover the landing's in there i'll tell you what it was a battle the uh, publishers were like, I, when I when I got the first edit draft back, it said vacuum the landing. No, I was like, how dare you! <laughs> I have tolerated you putting American spelling in this I book. Saw that, yeah. <laughs> I, I had no say over that. I did say I didn't want it. They were like, that's what happens. I was like, look, Americans can tell the difference between color with an O U and color with an O R. They they are they are not stupid. But anyway, this was vacuum the landing. I went off. I, this is one of those moments where I was really, I think it's because that was my mum's language. That's our yeah, language, we all right? had a Hoover. Hoover exactly. Hoover the landing. Yeah. We don't vacuum the landing. No. And so that's the one the, the one part of the, the book where I was like, no, this shall not pass. <laughs> I hope you're responsible with your response when you. I, I, when you I will admit that. it was not my most glorious moment. No. I was effusive. Uh, but not unkind. Absolutely. Well, I, you well defended because it is a Hoover, certainly. Manchester. My dad's first job was actually knocking on doors 
going into people's houses with the hoover, chucking a load of dirt on the oh floor. Oh, my God. And then I've hoover- never met anybody who did that. Yeah. And and his, my uncle, oh. his brother, he did it first of all. And my dad used to follow him around. And dad was so scared that the first door he knocked on, he knocked on the door, legged it back down the path and hid behind the wall on his very first <laughs> demo. <laughs> but he's actually really good at it. So we always had a hoover in our house. So that did stand out for me too when I saw the title. So, oh, yeah. So talking about Manchester, it segues into our quick fire Manchester round, Uh-oh. if that's okay. So... Your first memory of Manchester? I was young, old enough to be in a bar, (laughs) but young. And I was wearing, I wore a jacket. I wore a suit jacket with jeans. (laughs) Oh my God. It was double-breasted too. That's that's how you lose your credentials there. Uh, And then they can tell you're underage. (laughs) I don't remember remember what the name of the bar was, but I I remember being in there and just being terrified and tasting beer and be like, this is awful. I want a cocktail. And I had a black Russian instead. And I said, this is awful. <laughs> that, was, that was my first, because Manchester was, I don't think people realize, I, and I know it's not the same now, but when I grew up, Stockport was, was, the, was the kind of town-ish. And Manchester was the big city. It was like a proper trip. My sister, uh, Uki, my youngest sister, she went to Manchester all the time. And we were like, <sighs> and so when I finally went into Manchester, because I was just over the other way, drinking Diamond White at a train station in Buxton. That was my youth <laughs> right there. <laughs> Both those two drinks figured in my youth as well, yeah, I have to say. so shameful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I know. Absolutely. And um, what do you miss most about Manchester? Um, it's home. I'm very, I mean, I live in a lovely place here in Covent Garden, but it's home. I lived on 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 Blackfriars Bridge. I've lived in the Northern Quarter, and it's just home. I've always loved it. It's why I'm at Manchester uh, MFT. It's why I'm at that hospital trust. I could be at a hospital trust that is literally five minutes down the road, but I'm not because that's my home. Mm. Yeah, everybody says that. Manchester never leaves them, even if they leave Manchester. So I know you're partial to a Greg's meat slice, as yes. probably we all are. Read that. Um, <laughs> but what do you order at the chippy? Oh, that's easy um, <laughs> and embarrassing. So the chip shop near my sister's house, which is very 200 metres away from where we grew up, uh, she now does live in the posh bit. <laughs> yeah. uh, it does. It's a really good Chinese takeaway as well as a really good chip shop. I don't eat fish on any other occasion, but there I have fish and chips with a big pot of curry sauce. Yeah. Amazing. I also get a battered sausage, big thing of gravy, and occasionally I'll also get a, um, a, a, a steak pudding. Wow. That would be my complete order. You covered all bases, I think, there, other than a cheese and onion pie. No, you see, I don't, I, I can't, I have no time. Oh, and a balm, a balm. Don't forget the balm. Always a balm. Sometimes you just need to shove all of that in there. <laughs> I don't have a chip shop close to me. I've got a posh one. Yeah, not the same. Um, it's not It's not right. No, not the same. Um, three Manchester Giants, and I don't mean the basketball team. <laughs> Uh, three Manchester Giants. Uh, Stanley Chow. Mm. Let me think. I, suppose, I feel bound to say Andy Burnham, but I, I, less because of it. I, I quite like him, but it's not really about his politics. It's about the fact that 
this big push for, towards devolution, I think, will be very important for, for Greater Manchester. Yeah. I'm going to nominate a team here. When I uh, started off in basketball, I, I, I played for what used to be Manchester United's basketball, junior mm-hmm. basketball team. And that was the group of boys that very much were responsible for, like, get out of here, go do it, learn, be amazing. And now they still play. I used to play with them when I was in Manchester um, once a week and then drink Guinness, Guinness and Black. Yeah. And now they're called Manchester United, and they are my giants because they were uh, incredibly supportive and continue to be. Oh, that's great. Fantastic. Describe a mank in three words. Generous direct, authentic. Like that. Lastly, you describe yourself as a young chubby bookworm from Stockport. What do you think that lad would think of the giant that you've become? I'm trying to think of a way of saying this that doesn't sound extraordinarily arrogant, but (laughs) I think, so under the age, so under the age of 11, the boy I was would have, adored the psychologist because this is what that boy would want to be between kind of 12 school age secondary school age um between 12 and 17 at least inconceivable because i think my goal was to have a nice job and be completely invisible to the world and so what i do now would be terrifying 17 on when I discovered basketball, the the idea of the basketball bit would be like, yeah, of course, you said you were going to do that. So you did that. Probably my 17-year-old early starting basketball person was probably a little bit disappointed my career was so short. (laughs) It's like, yeah, why didn't you play 20 years in the NBA? So it's it's kind of a a question of phases. (laughs) Yes. Well, I just want to say that it's been an absolute honour to have you on We Built This City, John. And um, I would urge anybody listening to this to take time to read The Promises of Giants and to take all of those promises, make them to yourself, make them to your friends and to your family and to community because literally it will make the world a better place. And be mindful of the fact that we are all the giants of somebody. So thank you, John, for reminding us of the duty and the honour of being a giant. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. John Amici, OBE built this city by believing that words can change people's worlds, by letting us meet his mum and find our giant, and remembering to get up and pee. Thank you for listening to We Built This City. Since we last spoke, the podcast has won a British Podcast Award, so I appreciate your ears and your support every single day. I am now releasing interviews once every other week, so the next interview will be on September the 23rd. On the next episode, I'll be speaking to Stockport actor and HIV-positive activist Nathaniel Hall, who you'll know from Russell T. Davis's amazing series, It's a Sin. If you want to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head to rdpr.co.uk or feel free to give us a call at the office on 0161 236-1122. You can also follow us on Instagram at Roland Ransfield or on Twitter at RDPR Tweets. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. <laughs> <laughs>